0: Welcome back to the All About You podcast. This podcast is all about your emotional well-being, Y-E-W. So I started this podcast to try and have conversations with people about their emotional experiences, what mattered most to them in the course of their lives, what were their peak experiences, what were their most challenging experiences, what were their most joyous experiences. And my intention in having these conversations was to learn more about The human condition and also to give people a space in which they could have conversations which we don't ordinarily get the chance to have in everyday life and in my opinion that is unfortunate so I'm trying to create a space that is meaningful for people including myself and today's guest really helped create a meaningful space for me and she is one of the reasons I'm alive today. She is my mother. She is one of my biggest inspirations. She is an absolute paragon of love, maternalism, kindness, caring, professionalism, friendliness. I, I, I can't shower her in enough admiration or in enough superlatives. She is one of the most impressive teachers I've ever seen. She has been an incredible daughter to her mother an incredible mother to her children, an incredible grandmother or mammo to her grandchildren, a wonderful sister, an incredible friend. She is just a wonderful person and I am privileged to have her on the podcast here today. And I learned a lot about my mother from this conversation and I know that for people that know her, they will care deeply to hear what she has to say about her emotional experience and the things that she has found most important in rising above the challenges that she's experienced across her lifetime. This is a really important conversation for me, and I think it's going to be very useful to any listener that might know my mother, Bernadette McKeown, or indeed anyone who doesn't know her, because she just exudes wisdom at every moment. So without further ado, here is Bernadette McKeown, my ma'am. No. Bernadette McKeown also known as Mrs McKeown, Auntie Ben, Mamo and perhaps most importantly, Mam for me. Uh, so I'm delighted you're here on the podcast today. This podcast is all about you. So it's been a, <laughs> a couple of years ago since I invited you onto the podcast. And obviously, it's taken a long time to get you here. So, how are you feeling at the moment about it?
1: I'm very happy to be here, Pat. A um, little bit nervous, but happy to be here.
0: Okay, excellent. And obviously, this podcast is all about your emotional well being. So, to begin, what does your emotional well being what does what does that phrase bring up into your mind? What do you think about it?
1: Oh, that's a very good question, and one would think that I would have prepared an answer for that, <laughs> but I haven't. Uh, emotional well-being is, I suppose, it's all about how I'm feeling in myself on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah. Okay. And, inter when when you reflect on your very storied life, what do you? How do you feel? your well-being has been like what what are the most important parts of the of of your lifetime when you consider well-being what have been the most formative moments the most formative experiences
1: well i guess the most formative experiences have been a long time ago when i would have suffered from depression first not even really realising what it was and when I had panic attacks and I didn't realise what they were, um, they would have been the most formative experiences and even though they were very difficult experiences to go through, they taught me a lot. And I learned to cope with life's problems a lot better because of those experiences.
0: Okay, so in the first thing that pops into your mind when you're reflecting on your well-being over your life or your experiences with depression and panic attacks and you think that those very experiences are what made you able to are what informed your well being to be wherever it is today, and you're happy with your content. Your you feel like your well being is in a good place today because of those experiences.
1: Yeah, I learned a lot from them, Pat, and um, because I came out the other end, if you like, from them intact. Um, I felt that I could cope with nearly anything life threw at me uh, because they were so difficult and so prolonged um, that now if I was going through what somebody would call a rough patch or a difficult time in my life, I would reflect back and say, well... Remember that time you were in a bad place before and you got through it and this is something that you will get through. It won't last forever. And I remember a phrase my mother used very often Nivin an Enrod Akshal nothing lasts but for a while and it may be a truism, but it it is something that helps me uh, knowing that no matter what you're going through at any particular stage in life will not last it will change
0: so so the your experience with depression and panic attacks gave you a reference point for yourself to know how bad things can be and how there are the, those bad times are finite there there is a there is some type of resolution that occurs even though you might be blind to it when you're going through the experience and that has given you an maybe an empathy or an an insight into suffering which you can share with other people is that is that right
1: absolutely pat um i think having gone through those experiences makes you more compassionate towards others where you might dismiss them and say oh he's in bad form again or he's you know whatever you know you could be quite dismissive of them if you didn't understand or if you didn't experience them yourselves and i've i've suffered if you like from people who would say like oh wish he'd pull himself together or whatever or cop himself on or cop herself on you know there's people a lot worse off than he or she is but um, I wouldn't trade my experiences um, with depression even though how they were difficult to be a person who didn't understand it or a person who had no empathy for another human being who was Um, going through a very difficult time or who was feeling depressed or whatever
0: Okay, so to me it sounds like you're people might find something like this surprising but you're actually very grateful for the suffering that you had
1: Yes, I am grateful I am grateful that I did go through those difficult times and that um, I'm a better person because of it um. Now, if I had the choice <laughs> to go through them or to have the ability to be that person without going through them, maybe I'd choose not to go through them. But I definitely prefer to be a person who understands what it's like to be there, um, uh, than to be a person who would be dismissive of anybody with uh emotional problems or whatever yeah i i I, and i've read that people who've a lot of people who've gone through cancer for instance which i can't conceive of being seen as a gift but a lot of people who have gone through it do see it as a gift on the learning experience and i find that difficult because it's such um to me it's such a horrible disease But I can understand it in that depression is also a horrible disease and panic attacks are not pleasant by any means. And yet I am glad that they were part of my life and that I I know I'm a better person having gone through those days.
0: And you said, like, if you had the choice to go through them or not to go through them, you'd choose to not go through them, but only if you could have the knowledge. But is it possible? is it possible to have the knowledge without actually going through the suffering? Uh, I mean that as a genuine question for, for maybe somebody who might be listening who hasn't gone through depression and panic attacks. Do you think they can actually have the knowledge that you have without having gone through the suffering?
1: I think some people are really great at understanding the human condition and that They might not necessarily have to have suffered depression and panic attacks or both. But I don't know if it's possible to understand it as well as somebody who has actually lived through it. Like, you know, doctors don't have to have every disease to be able to treat somebody who has. But having gone through something yourself... Definitely, I think it has to in some way give you an edge on understanding another human being that would be going through that.
0: Yeah, I, I really like that, uh, that's similar, that metaphor of a doctor not having to have experienced tuberculosis to appreciate what somebody with tuberculosis might be going through. And it reminds me that uh, of an idea which... Undoubtedly, you imparted to me at some stage. Considering I uh, owe a lot of my uh, good fortune and any ideas I have to to you and your your uh, parenting, is that oftentimes people, I think, struggle with failures of their imagination. So they might think things like, "Oh, I could never imagine what it's like," or uh, "I." oh it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me i think oftentimes those are failures of imagination so i think for somebody who hasn't gone through uh, depression or panic attacks to think that they have no idea what it's like to have gone through that uh, to me that's false i think that's a failure of that person's imagination um which they can be which can be pointed out um and with that in mind when you when you describe panic attacks when you name panic attacks and you name depression what what are those experiences what what is depression what has been depre- what has depression meant for you? what does it mean to you today and what what is a panic attack for you and what does what do panic attacks mean for you today on reflection and even with with current thoughts or current perspectives on on the phenomena
1: um, well when I think of depression I think of the first half that comes to my mind is being uh, on a playground in school <laughs> I was a teacher and um, I suppose that's the time it affected me most when all these children were running around screaming their heads off and I was there very subdued and very just there in physically there but kind of I don't know mentally where I was I was in some torture hole or other Um but I remember kind of walking around aimlessly you know supposedly checking in on the children but I just didn't want to be there. Let me out of here was screaming in my head. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. Um, that was one of the worst times when I would have been depressed. and just waiting for that bell to go that I could get into a, a smaller area. Where it was just the children in my own class that I had to contend with. And... Another time was in university uh, in first year. Uh, I had moved from a very secluded country life to a concrete jungle, which was Belfield and really didn't feel I belonged or kind of found it very, very difficult again. I was depressed there and i wanted to get out of it very badly but because i had won a scholarship everybody was telling me oh no you'd be mad to leave you'd be mad to believe to leave crazy thing to do but in my head i need to get out of here was the most salient thought i need to get out of here and i remember i remember i didn't care whether i lived or died because that was everybody was telling me you know you must stay you must stay you must stay and my thoughts were I must get out, I must get out, I must get out. And I remember crossing the organ jewel carriageway and not looking left nor right because I just felt I had to get out in whatever way. I wasn't actively contemplating suicide, but I didn't care whether I got made it to the other side of the road because um, in my head it was you have to get out of here, you have to get out of here and um i felt nobody was hearing what i was saying everybody was advising me to stay where i was so it was a difficult time but thankfully i i did go to my local doctor in dublin at the time and um i told him i wanted to retire officially and he wouldn't do anything to help me, he obviously didn't understand and thankfully I was able to go home to my own doctor and as soon as I walked in the door he says, what's wrong with you, pet? It was such a different experience and I couldn't believe I had said nothing to him, he just says, what's wrong with you, pet? And I told him then that I felt I needed to get out of university. And he asked me what did I need from him and I asked him, I said I need a sir to say that I'm unwell and that I need to retire. And he facilitated that and to this day I am extremely grateful to Dr. Kane for doing that for me. Where my own doctor that I was attending wouldn't do it or couldn't do it or didn't have the empathy that uh, the family doctor did have for me. So they're the things I think of when I think of depression. They're the most things that come into my head. Walking around aimlessly in the playground. Being surrounded by (laughs) a lot of screaming children. And thinking, oh, I need to be somewhere else. And also at university feeling I need to get out of here. And that nobody was hearing what I was saying. But in the end, I did retire officially at the ripe old age of maybe 18, I think. And I went to work in England as a nursing assistant in a psychiatric hospital. Frying a pan to the fire, but it wasn't really. I learned a lot there, and again, it was another experience I was glad I had. Um, back to the primary school situation, when I was again very depressed, um, how did I get? It? Oh yes, I went to the doctor then and told him that, told him how I was feeling. So he asked me. He says, "You need some time off." I said "I certainly do." And thankfully, I was able to say that. I don't know where I got the strength, but I was able to say that. And uh, he said, "Right, I'll write a cert for you." And he asked me what would he put on the cert, which I found um, an absolutely overwhelming question. What would he put on the cert? And um, then he suggested that he'd put flu on it. So I thought, okay, put flu on it. So he wrote a certificate for me for, I think, two weeks was the recommended amount to get over a flu. So, if, and if I didn't feel better after, well, it might have been only one week. I'm not sure which was now. But he could give me extra time. So I remember leaving the surgery thinking, oh my God, I feel awful. I feel terrible. And now I have a disease that can't be mentioned. And it has, the name has to be changed to something more palatable. So I was suffering from the flu. So that kind of left me thinking I was in a worse state than I actually thought I was in. So anyway, I went home and I didn't feel better after the week or the two weeks. So I needed another week. So I got the third week or the second week, whatever it was, and still didn't feel ready for work. But I guess the flu couldn't last any longer than two or three weeks. So I went back to the grindstone and at this stage I wasn't eating. I was just taking what was called Complan. It was a liquid meal with lots of calories and I knew I had to eat. So I used to take that. Um, It was a very dark time. I don't remember all the details, but I remember being very miserable day in, day out and having no... No zest for life. So then the panic attacks came. I think they first started when my husband Eamon was ill. I would often had a very good day. What I thought was a very good day. And I'd go to bed and go to sleep. And I'd wake up. And I couldn't get warm. I was shaking and shivering. And I was going to the toilet at last. And despite the fact that the heat been on in the room and extra blankets and duvets been put on me, I just couldn't stop shaking and shivering and I didn't know what was wrong. But that happened several times and it was only in later years revisiting it that I realized, yes, I was having panic attacks. That's a long answer to a short question. No,
0: that's really, really helpful, Mum. Thank you. Uh, or helpful, Bernadette. I'm going to call you Mum from here on in. Um, yeah, So the we can maybe, maybe we can, we can. I probably should have broken it down into two to 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 try and explain depression and uh, panic attacks and what they mean for you. And one answer is is uh, a, a, too big of an ask. Um, but there's definitely a common theme. I think I observe a common theme in the two salient experiences that spring to mind uh, when you thought of depression. Uh, The first one you mentioned being in the schoolyard and thinking to yourself, I need to get out of here. And also the second instance being in Belfield in University College Dublin and thinking, I need to get out of here. You were you need you needed escape. You were totally uncomfortable in your environment. Um, it, it interestingly didn't seem like you knew why you were so uncomfortable, but you just but you just there was something really kind of deep within you that might have been difficult to articulate. I just need I need I need to be somewhere else. I need to get out of here. I need escape. Um, and it sounds it sounds almost like you're your back was against the wall or you're a a cornered animal and you just, you just needed to get out. And, um, it's interesting when you, when you alluded to, or when you described the crossing, the N11, the dual carriageway outside UCD without looking left or right. And without actually kind of officially or consciously thinking about suicide, but deep within you, you knew you needed an escape and, it was kind of, I suppose, maybe an unconscious uh, effort to escape um, when nobody gave you the space or it would took a long time for somebody to give you the space to escape and to have enough graciousness to support you in a decision that you needed to make at that time. And thankfully... Came through the family doctor, um, and thankfully, you got that quote unquote second opinion. And um, because deep down, you knew what you needed to do, you just needed to hear someone else tell you that you could do it. Um, And yeah, so. Before I had asked you what depression and panic attacks meant to you, I I had mentioned how I think it's a failure of people's imagination to not know or to not be able to sympathize with somebody who's feeling depressed or who's maybe identifying as depressed or who's feeling down or who looks down. I think everybody knows what it feels like to be in an uncomfortable situation where, that they don't want to be in. And although I'm not a teacher... um and although i haven't dropped out of ucd did drop out of dcu but not ucd <laughs> although i haven't gone through those specific experiences you have gone through well i can imagine based on my experiences of not of being in a situation that i didn't want to be in and i think that's something that everybody can relate to they can they can amplify that up in their mind and imagine what it must have been like for you or at least some element some quality of what it must have been like for you um, it's, it's, that, that was that was brilliant man Thanks very much for sharing that And then you Describe panic attacks as A shivering And a, a, a sensation of being very cold And not being able to get warm Which is a Which might be a peculiar explanation For some people Maybe even for some people Who've who experienced panic attacks And Maybe a take-home message there is that everybody experiences them differently. But there
1: were the salient things for me and the panic attacks. Now I I was kind of short of breath as well and feeling that I couldn't get my breath or something as well. But the biggest thing was the cold, the cold and the shaking. I couldn't I couldn't stop my body from shivering, even though it what it literally was not cold in the room where I was. The, Heating was on. It was very warm. The extra duvets were on. It was a very warm bedroom at those times. But I was still felt cold and shivery. And again, I think probably was shallow breathing that left me. I don't know, but maybe looking back and maybe it was that I wasn't breathing properly. And that um, fear, fear was the other thing. I was going to die. I obviously thought I was going to die. And though, when I had panic attacks. Yeah. When I was depressed, I didn't care whether I lived or died. But uh, when I had panic attacks, I was afraid that I was dying.
0: Interesting. Interesting. There's two things that come to mind when you, when you say that. One is how you can kind of thread a physiological perspective on every experience that you described like from the need to escape you know mapping very clearly onto a fight or flight mechanism and uh, uh, similarly
1: or at least a type
0: of fight or flight mechanism and similarly the uh that fear again that fear of uh fight or flight you know that 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 fear activating a fight or flight response in you but the an interest a really interesting distinctive quality was that in one instance death was not a concern and in the other instance death was the only concern so maybe that's that's uh, that's what distinguishes the experiences for you um and so often depression and anxiety are kind of mentioned in the same sentence and because i suppose they, they do share so much in common but they are i suppose they are distinct experiences and I think that's a, that's a really interesting distinction that you made, the absolutely no concern for death and the only concern that is totally consuming being death in the case of uh, anxiety and panic attacks. Um, so you gave a narrative of the timeline when there was resolve for U C D you did you you did get your doctor's cert and you were able to go and escape. Your escape was somehow facilitated. You went to England and worked in a psychiatric hospital and you learned something you learned some things there and you learned some things during that time. Similarly, uh, when you were on yard duty and in school and you eventually got the six cert which didn't have the right label on it. Which caused you more suffering than you needed, but you get you did get time off work, and during that time off work, some recuperation was accomplished, and you were able to find some resolve. And uh, additionally, you there came a time where you were able to reflect on your panic attacks, suggesting some type of interim period where there wasn't panic attacks. And I suppose you know this can be broken down into to three questions, or you can answer to how you see fit. Um, what I'm wondering is what was the resolve? How did the, how did the resolve come about in England? What did, did you, was there something in England you learn, you learned, was it the passage of time? Was it a combination of both? In your time off from school in the second instance, did you, did you just need, did rest help you recover? Or did you learn something during that period? Did you, was there a certain support that you sought out that that worked? And um and then in the third instance, how did the interim period of no panic attacks come about for you to be able to reflect on a time where you did have panic attacks and be able to name them for what they were? So you can we can revisit any part of that question, but I suppose whatever springs to mind now in terms of resolve, uh, I'd love to hear.
1: Well, I guess Papa, the panic attacks was that um when I get one and get over it, then I, when I get, we'll say the second one, I revisit or I learned myself just to revisit. This is something you had before you got over it. You will get over this one as well. I learned, I also learned how to, I don't know how I learned it or whether I read up on it or what, I don't know. But I did learn about cupping my hands around my mouth and nose and breathing that way um later on i learned about seven eleven breathing making the out breath longer than the in breath that was the most important thing it could be three five breathing breathing in for three and out for five i think there were the numbers but the important thing to remember was that the out breath had to be longer and there's physiology attached to that. I'm, you know I'm not into it as long as I remember that <laughs> the out-breath is longer. So I'd revisit and say, you had this before. I, I learn to calm myself and say, you were in this place before. You got over it. This is just another instance of it. You will get over it. You will be okay. And I'd consciously try and give more attention to my breath. And to take um longer breath, deeper breath, I would, I would focus on a distance away from me, and I would like as if I had to physically inhale the air from a, a certain point all the way into my mouth, or in through my nose. Well, it was more in breathing in through my nose that I had to physically bring it, and then I would breathe out to a spot further away as if i was blowing to cool soup they were the things that i used so focusing on those points helped me and it simmered down my breathing and helped to regulate it i also was on medication um from the doctor I think it was Xanax. It was a low dose of Xanax, as far as I remember. And I was supposed to take one three times a day. I didn't take one three times a day. Initially, I did for a while, one three times a day. And I was never one for taking medication. So I used to cut it down a lot. Uh, and if I felt that I was, oh, there's one coming, i take it. I'd take a tablet. And it would help. And the fact that I had them. I used to have them with me. In my handbag. Wherever I was going. And that I knew there was that little prop. Or the little the little crutch for somebody who had a broken leg. That would help me. And I would only take it when I needed it. I wasn't too worried about getting addicted. Because as I said. I'm not a person that takes tablets. Even though I do believe Xanax can be addictive. But um. I felt, no, I'll only take it when I need it. And that, that worked for me. The Xanax and the breathing. And then after some time, I was able to do it just with the breathing. I didn't need Xanax, although I did keep them with me. Or if I had something very difficult to face, I would make sure that I had Xanax in my bag in case. And I think the fact that it was there helped me. Um, most of the time I wouldn't have to take it, but sometimes I did have to take it. Uh, That was the panic attacks. And I learned I don't know when I had one. Now, Uh, I've watched other people have them, and while watching other people have them, I was very grateful that I had them myself because I knew what the other person was going through, and I was able to help them, and I was able to stay calm and stay focused and to breathe with the other person having them. And I felt that I could understand very well what we were going through. And I wouldn't have not had that experience for anything because I was so glad and so, so, so grateful to be able to help yourself, Pat, when you were having them. I knew what it was. And I was... You have no idea how grateful I was. Um, I just just um, I can't put words on how grateful I was that I was able to help my own child who was going through a difficult time and that if I hadn't gone through it I wouldn't have been able to help you and that would have been the worst thing ever to see you struggling with something and not being able to help but I knew that you would also get through it as I did Um, and I will go through the same experience that I had, multiplied by a hundred, if knowing that I was going to be able to help you, or any other human being for that matter, especially your own precious son. Um, The depression, I was put on medication for that too, and it was supposed to kick in after, oh, was it six or eight weeks? Um, it seemed it didn't do an awful lot for me, but for a lot longer than that, I seemed to be on it for maybe double that time before I felt any help uh, from the medication. And I stayed on it. I can't remember now how long I could have been on it, a couple of years. And then I was off the medication and then I had to go back on it a few times. And I had the feeling of being um, less than I wanted to be because I was reliant on medication, which with hindsight was crazy. You know, nobody would feel guilty about using a crutch if they had a broken leg or nobody would feel guilty about having to use glasses if they couldn't see clearly. But for some reason, I felt guilty about having to take a tablet for depression. Seems crazy now, but I did. I didn't want to be taking tablets. Um, But I don't, I cannot honestly remember how long I was on them, but I was on and off them for a number of years. And the final time I went to the doctor, again, suffering badly with depression, um, the tablets were prescribed for me and I didn't take them. Um, I just said, look, you know what this is? It's just a temporary, it's a temporary feeling. You know, things are not maybe running too smoothly. I, I have no idea what the concerns were at the time. Maybe it was financial, maybe it was, I don't know. But um, it would have been... After my husband died, I took a year out from teaching and there would have been a lot of financial concerns uh, taking a year out, but we were diligent and saved for a rainy day. Um, And again, nobody supported my idea except one sister who said, yeah, go for it. But everybody else said, no, don't make any changes when you've had a death in the family like that. Don't make any changes for a year, two years or whatever. And I knew deep down, this is a rainy day. This is a day that we've saved for. And if this isn't a rainy day, what the fuck is? Oh, excuse me, French.
0: Oh, fuck away, man.
1: Um, I just thought, no, I need I had a, yourself who was... Only five days off your third birthday when your dad died, and if that wasn't a rainy day, and if I couldn't be there for you, I thought, no this is this is a rainy day. This is a very rainy, fucking rainy day. <laughs> so um, I decided I can be stubborn. I know you find that hard to believe, Pat, but I can be a stubborn bitch. I decided, despite everybody's advice, um, I would take a year out. So I took the year out. Now, I didn't survive the whole year. By the, the last term, I was, I was um, out of funds, big time. And I thought, oh, I better get a job. And um. I couldn't get, I couldn't couldn't substitute for um, a trained person's. This this will give you a laugh now and it's not 100 years ago. I had to substitute for a non-trained sub's money. And again, my stubbornness kicked in and I says, damn it, no way in hell am I going to work for... An untrained See. substitute, and I a fully trained, fully qualified, fully credited, credi- whatever the word is, uh, credited teacher, and yet they wanted me. I says, no. And I got onto the union, and they said, well, that's just the way it is. When you take a career break like that, you cannot work. I think the crazy law has changed, but um, I said, no, I will dig holes and fill them. Just keep digging them and filling them before I will go and work. So, eventually, I think somebody saw sense. And I got to work for for the proper amount. They were probably really stuck for substitute people. But uh, this girl was not returning. And there was no way I was going to work for that. And I needed to work. So, what was I answering? Um...
0: You were, you were mentioning about uh, how there was some resolve uh, to your experience of depression and you oh, yes. began speaking about uh, medication and then um, taking a career break after um, your husband's dad dying.
1: Yeah, so um, as you can imagine, it was a very difficult time and uh, yeah, that was when I was first diagnosed with depression. So, I was in a, in a bad place. I was um, suffering with depression, but it couldn't be called depression. It was called the flu. I, it was a nameless disease. I had lost my husband. I was suffering from non unmentionable <laughs> disease uh, for which I had to take medication. And I couldn't, it couldn't last more than three weeks. So you had to kind of, because it was a flu, it couldn't last, so I had to get back to work. You can't, all people say you have a flu and it still is a flu and it's three weeks off work. Crazy kind of flu. So I went back and yes, I remember going back and being, again, just aimlessly doing, I remember the yard duty again being the hardest and not being able to eat been you know i had no interest in food but knew i had to take something to sustain myself and knew i had responsibilities i had four children that had to be looked after so gradually the medication did kick in uh, after a long time and uh, um with the time off i was able to get some books and some things that helped me and one of the the mantras that I used to repeat regularly was focus on the donut, not the (laughs) hole. You often heard me say that. Focus on the donut, not the hole. So I was trying to focus on what was going well with my life and not with the emptiness that I felt that my husband was gone and wasn't coming back. And, you know, I was saying I have four lovely children. I had my husband for 18 years we loved each other very much. Um, there were people who were in marriages that, where they despised their partners and had to continue to live with them. So I was focusing on all the positive things, and that certainly did help. I just, whenever a negative thought would come into my mind, I'd replace it with as many positive ones as I could. And that one little phrase, focus on the donut, not the whole. I wrote it down several times and I stuck it up on the fridge and the bathroom mirror and, you know, lots of places. And um, I did focus on how lucky I was that I had a man whom I loved very, very much and who loved me. And I had four wonderful children and I had a house and I had no mortgage. Um, and I was, you know um that I would cope and I would would handle whatever whatever um stuff came my way. I was another one you you can you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you know. Um and thankfully, yeah, I survived and gradually gradually as I said, came off the uh medication and gradually just um, was able to cope with stuff that was very difficult because it wasn't, no matter what I had to experience, none of the things were as bad as those dark, dark days of depression and anxiety attacks where I thought where I didn't care whether I lived or died. and again, at other times where I thought I was going to die and that I was going to leave my four children orphans. So they were yeah i survived
0: yeah you certainly did um yeah and it's it's funny so there's there's multiple factors uh that kind of stand out to me there and uh, be curious to hear your reaction to them as i as i sound them out and where the credit lies and where it doesn't lie and you know where the weight of the credit may lie versus where where it may be where which factors might have been less important. So, the first thing that came to mind, the first thing that you mentioned was medication. Um, excuse me. The second thing I think you mentioned then was time off. The third thing you mentioned, uh, as I remember, as I recall, was um, kind of books and then certain mantras. Uh, such as focus on the donut, not the hole, and you can do this. Um, and then the final thing you mentioned then was just the so it was the reference point that you had uh, in your mind, that you, you were primed with when Dad died and when you were going through uh, the rainiest day, or the rainiest days probably, and... Um, the reference point of knowing what it feels like to not care about if you're going to die and knowing what it feels like to knowing what it feels like that death is the only care you have and it feels like it's imminent um so i think there's maybe five possibly five things there number one medication two uh time time off from the typical tasks uh such as such as employment and work um number three uh, so, uh, books and mantras so there's four, four things that are called books and mantras, such as focusing on don't the hole, and uh the you can do this and then the last thing i remembered uh, was the having just having the, the frame of reference so i'd be curious like how, how do you how do you rank those things uh on reflection and if you could go through the experience again are there things you wish you knew then that you know now or are there are there things you wish you could advise to your 42 year old self going through that period um there's two questions there there's fucking loads of questions there i'm, I'm loading too much into one question Um we'll start with how important how important do you view those view those factors what was mo- what were the most important things um and what maybe what sprung to your mind as i as i listed them out
1: well, what sprung to mind was my mother saying, Ni and to remember that, that nothing lasts but for a while. That was one of the mantras, too. I didn't mention earlier, but um, this won't last. It will, you know, you will, you have the ability to cope with this. Um, the Knowing that it wouldn't last was a great thing, and if I could tell somebody that's gone through it, look, it seems like your life is over, but things will improve. You will, you will get the strength. You will get the strength to cope with this. You will have what you need. Like I found, if even though I had support from family and friends, especially initially after the death, but people go back to their own families and have their own things to do and you know that initial help by necessity peters out and even I push people away because um, I felt they didn't understand and they couldn't understand and they were annoying the hell out of me because they were saying things that weren't helpful and I more than likely pushed people away. Because I just was hurting so much that um, somebody saying the wrong thing to me was um, worse than not having anybody there at all. For instance, I was up at the grave one day and a lady who had lost her daughter came over to me and said, um, well, at least your husband was sick and you knew he was going to die and... um." My daughter, you know, your daughter is your daughter like your husband. She was comparing her pain with my pain. Now the poor pet didn't, I'm sure, mean anything by it. But I just wanted to strangle her there and then. <laughs> because, uh, you know, you somebody's pain is somebody's pain. And you don't compare. Um, and people do say, say awful stuff. Um, you know, like oh so you knew he was going to die, like you know, as if that made it okay and as that as if that took your pain away from maybe their pain where their partner whatever whoever their loved one died maybe suddenly or something you know things like that really I just wanted to I wanted to scream, and of course you can't scream um <laughs> But
0: I would have forgiven you for screaming.
1: Yeah. Uh yeah, people are and like later on I just said, Oh, cap yourself on. How can you expect other people to understand what they happened experienced? They don't have a clue. Nobody knows what it's like to lose the love of their life, whether it be their wife or their husband, until you've experienced something. You have some idea of what it's like, but you don't really until it comes to your own door you you can't, it's just not possible Um, like I don't know what it is to lose a limb or to be suddenly left that I can't walk I, I have an experience that I don't know I can imagine but I could be totally wrong so it's unfair I suppose to expect people to understand but if people just could zip it and say nothing and maybe just give the person who's bereaved a hug Sometimes the best thing is shut the fuck up because there were things said to me that and they just kept getting bigger and bigger in my head because they were just so awful and so not understanding anyway um i'm I'm rambling uh.
0: Don't you're not I tell, man, books were definitely
1: that. a great help to me. There might be other people who would not be able to read, just cut and concentrate on a book. But definitely books really helped me. They were just a lifeline. Um I was attracted to um we'll say the psychology section in the bookshop if I went into it. And uh, I remember choosing books. For the first time in my life that weren't recommended reading for some course or other. And it was such a freedom. And I got such great delight in choosing these books that nobody told me to read. And they weren't, as I said, recommended reading. I remember the first one I I bought was Simple Abundance by Sarah Van Bratnock. And it was a fabulous book. And I thought, I was so delighted i had come across this book all by myself at whatever age i was maybe 40 or something and nobody had recommended it and nobody had told me to read it i just picked it up and i was overjoyed with all the wisdom that was in it because our educational system is so crazy that we only read what we're told to read i back then that's what i read you know, you hadn't time to read anything else, or you hadn't time to choose a book and um, you know, do a critique of it. That would would have been unheard of. Uh, way back then. You were told what books to read, you were told what thoughts to think, uh, you know, which was crazy. Um, I'm hoping it's a bit different. I certainly made it different for my students because of my experience, you know. Um So books were a big, big help to me. Um, What else did I say? Um, And knowing that something wouldn't last. Because I think that's an awful thing to think that you're in such a horrible, dark place and that there was no way out of it. No matter how dark a place you're in, there is light somewhere. You just have to find it and you have to... Be patient and know that it's coming and know, you know, at the time, I, people would have said that to me, but I thought, yeah, if there's light coming, it's it's um, a bus or a car that's going to crash right into me, but, you know, it's not. There is light and you're just, you can be so enmeshed in the darkness that you nearly come to a stage where you nearly don't want to see the light and you can I think I th- the first time I heard it I thought it was a horrible horrible thing to say and it was said to you in um, in a setting what kind of a setting was it in a supposed to be a helping session where don't misuse your imagination I kind of thought what is this crazy person saying to somebody but we can we can let our imaginations take us to dark places. And but I think you have to be very careful how how you communicate with somebody. And it can't be in any judgmental way. And I found at that time it was said to you, I felt it was a judgment judgment, you know, you're misusing your imagination path. Now, I'm sure, I don't know whether you experienced it as that, or uh, you remember I, what I'm referring to.
0: Uh, well, vaguely, I'm guessing it was in the psychiatric setting or psychotherapeutic setting, maybe CBT uh, is maybe what's springing to mind. But no, I can't. I can't remember the specifics of it. No. It I was. can imagine that uh, I'd probably be inclined to agree with you, uh, that I don't, if someone was to say that to me now, uh, I'd, um uh, it's, uh, I think that's focusing on the whole and not the donut.
1: Yes, uh, and you know it's it's back to you know some people will say to you, well, you're choosing to be miserable, and you're choosing to be, who chooses to be miserable, you know, but um, it's a difficult one, and I think I do think that we can misuse our imagination, and we can, to maybe no fault of our own that we if we're in a dark place we can get carried by that current of darkness further into the darkness and we have to we have to try and pull back from it. Um, but to to make a judgment on somebody you're misusing your imagination or to me, that's not helpful in any way. But I do think we have to be aware that sometimes we can let our imaginations run away with us. And we we have to pull back from dark scenarios. You know, that if you go too far, if you... Get yourself. I don't. I don't know how you. You don't actually go too far, but you could get swooped up and be in a dark place and kind of let yourself focus on the whole on the whole rather than the, than the donut, if you know what I mean. And you could, you could get swooped up on that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think I, I think it, it does make sense to me. I think um, maybe another way of describing it is that, so our imaginations can work to our detriment. Yes, um, yes. It doesn't mean that they have to work to our detriment. I think the maybe a more helpful way of communicating the same message that that person tried to communicate to me is you have more power over your imagination than you think you have. And we can use that imagination in more helpful ways. We can use our imagination in more harmful ways than others. But let's work together to try and use that imagination you have in a more helpful way.
1: That's that's exactly what I was trying to say and didn't do it. But you put the words on it uh, very well, I think. And... Um, that was something else that I discovered way back then was creative visualisation where you remember kind of a place, a happy place or a happy time in your life. And you you go back there in your imagination. And I think that can be so powerful and so helpful, you know, rather than, you know, getting caught up in, oh, this is... Shocking and it's terrible, and it's you know, it's only going to get worse. And you know, to catch yourself and to with help to be able to pull yourself away from that dark imagining,
0: yeah. It's funny, just when you were talking about uh ranking those four things which uh helped you at the time, and despite two things, two things strike me again the first being that now my my own bias is going to be sounded here and the first being that despite medication being the first thing you mentioned it didn't even feature on your reflection of those four things Um, which perhaps i'm reading into too much but maybe suggests to me that it uh, played a less important role than it's than the order in which it was it was mentioned in sequence like it was i don't think i think it I the impression i'm getting that it was maybe it wasn't the the most important thing and my bias might suggest that maybe it wasn't even an important thing to me on that second reflection you had on those four criteria and that uh, fourth criteria that brought you uh, closer to well-being and cro- brought you gri- uh, closer to health uh, were ideas uh, mantras and books um so, I want I like to hear you react to that, to my bias about medication and to my what I said there. But before I give you that chance, I also notice, for me, what seems like a a glaring omission, um, from from that list, um, and that is therapy and support like uh, um, formal kind of support like talking therapy or psychotherapy um, so I'm curious to hear what curious to hear your reaction to me saying maybe medication didn't play an important role but it was just something that you were prescribed by the doctor in the same way that they diagnosed you with the flu you know erroneously and um, also to react to uh do you uh, do you feel on reflection that therapy was a glaring omission now as i say it and also one thing we we failed to explore there were things you you wish your 42 or 43 year old self knew when you're going through the rainiest days so again i've loaded way too much into a single question um but what what springs to your mind as I as I say as I mention that, as I say those things. Oh, I
1: agree hundred percent, Pat, that therapy was a glaring omission of wasn't mentioned, counselling wasn't mentioned, psychotherapy wasn't mentioned, I didn't know anything about it. I learned about those things when you yourself were suffering from depression and um, you were attending Hazel House in Navan. And you were put on medication and I was very, very concerned that you were put on medication. And I read this book by two limerick doctors. I can't remember now what it was called, but it was an absolutely brilliant book, which I mentioned to the psychiatrist that was dealing with you um, and she hadn't heard of it. And as far as I remember, I got her a copy of it. I didn't give her my own copy because I wanted it. But I was alarmed to see that they had you on medication, which wasn't appropriate for somebody under the age of 18. And when I asked to get to get um you weaned off it, I was told no that you weren't ready. And um from my own experience then and reflecting on how the medication for depression didn't help as much as like reading and other things helped me. I decided after reading the doctor, the two doctors' books from Limerick. I can't believe I have forgotten the names.
0: Perhaps I can find I can find the name of the book and yeah. we can uh, link with it. Yeah, with the, definitely, the it
1: was worth it. But um, I was, gonna say I was taking. I decided no when I realized I don't know why I didn't read the the information that came with the, with the medication that you were on normally I would do that especially for the children I mightn't bother with my own uh, medication literature but for my children I would always read it and I hadn't read it and I read it then and oh the hair stood on the back of my neck you know thinking that the brain, the brain wasn't fully developed and that yet you were put on this medication that wasn't suitable for you and I was, oh, I, there was no question in my mind, you were coming off it. Prozac was what you were on. And I weaned you off it. It was a liquid form. And I weaned you off. And um, after some time, the doctor said that she thought that you were doing okay and that she could begin to wean you off. And I told her the truth. I said, I've weaned him off. I says, I'm sorry, I couldn't cope. it. after all I read, I could not, you know, I uh, leave you on the medication. And at some stage. At some stage um, during your time with this doctor, you were really suffering from separation anxiety from me because I was going down to look after my mother who had a stroke and I was going from our house down to her house and you'd always come with me because you know you did not want to be on your own and um, you had to be close to me and at that stage like a professional psychiatrist suggested that you they would take you into St. John of God Hospital for observation and tests and I nearly lost my life which The reason I'm telling this is that um, parents beware and people beware that you know professional people can do really stupid things and suggest stupid things, and I was terrified, even though I was an adult, um, forty-two year old, maybe more at that stage. I would have been, yeah.
0: You were more that message. You would have been, uh, fifty. 52 53.
1: Right. So I was a 52-year-old woman who was absolutely terrified that this psychiatrist was somehow going to take my child away from me because I wasn't agreeing to what she was suggesting. To send him into a hospital, a child who was suffering from separation anxiety, to send him into a hospital and separate him further. A child who had lost his dad at a young age and who was now going to be hospitalized for them to do fucking tests on and take him away from his mother and his siblings. I was terrified. I don't know how it that was the dark talk about dark moments. That was a pretty dark time and I was that was my fear that Somehow you could be taken away from me because I wasn't playing ball with the person who was in charge. I was terrified. So, as my darling sister always said to me, bring your own brain with you and make sure to engage it. So thankfully, I brought my brain with me and thankfully I engaged it and I said, no, no where were you going into any St. John of God's hospital? But I had that fear, the strong fear, real fear to me that somehow my precious child could be taken from me because I wasn't playing ball.
0: There'd be some kind of, you know, report done or like the psychiatrist knew best. And yeah, I understand your your concern. And uh, I can certainly attest to the wisdom of your uh, pushback because that would have been an absolute disaster with whatever insight I have into my own well-being now and into neuroscience or psychology or psychotherapy. That would have been, um, that would have been an unbelievably harmful uh, trauma for me to go through if I was, um, admitted. Um, because yeah, I absolutely did have separation anxiety and it wasn't even something that I could articulate. I didn't know why I just needed to be close to you. Um, it, especially during the night time I suppose because I maybe had no control over sleep and you know things could happen maybe when if I'd when I'd fall asleep but, you know it was as if because dad died and I was so young I might as well have been asleep because when I started to form more kind of conscious experiences there was just the absence there so yeah so that it would have been a it would have been a it was a terrible uh, professional suggestion uh, from that psychiatrist uh, I suppose it was 15 years ago. Maybe people were more prone to making terrible idea or p- putting forward terrible ideas then. But... um,
1: She was a lovely, lovely woman. She was a lo- woman. You remember woman. That. I remember. She was great yeah. and uh, she tried her best. But like the wisdom or the lack of wisdom in that, w- it just goes to show that... We all have to take, well children can't be expected to take responsibility but as adults we have to take responsibility for our own health and well-being and uh, that just because somebody is a psychiatrist or somebody is an expert in a particular field doesn't mean to say that they will make the right decision for you.
0: Yeah, she was a kind woman but she was ineffectual and um, her decision to prescribe uh, antidepressants to me was a bad one. And then um, her idea uh, to admit me to St. John of Gods was also a bad one. Um, now, she
1: did agree later on because I was doing a lot of reading at the time. Again, that's how books were. I think books were so helpful. Uh, I discovered CBT through reading cognitive behavioral therapy, and I told her, this is what i want for my son i think this is going to be the best way to help him and she facilitated that and i think that was the start of your recovery
0: it's yeah that's correct um yeah my wasn't getting anywhere with her um I, I i enjoyed spending time with her um but i wasn't getting anywhere with her and um your suggestion of cbt got me seeing another lady um neither whose neither name's i can remember but i remember Almost, I almost even remember her less. She was more unremarkable for whatever reason. Maybe I saw her less than the initial uh, lady, but uh, she was very effective. And um, uh, together, I was able to make some progress instead of um, remaining at whatever point I was at or spiraling downwards, actually began to, to progress. So um, it's in- interesting, I suppose, how maybe just the nature of uh, me being on the other side of the microphone, on the other side of the other microphone that uh, brings the story back to me. Um, when this podcast is all about you and not all about me, but I suppose as a parent, um, your your children's lives are going to be um, uh, paramount. And that's, that's certainly a, a trait that I've witnessed in you over, over my lifetime is that you're very... Uh, conscious of um, your children, uh, your children are foremost in your mind. I think in, in most of your decisions, and um, in most of your waking life, that 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 uh, that certainly has sh- has struck me over over my lifetime. Um, but what brought what brought us to talk about my situation was uh, your reflection on your uh, on your medication. Which brought you to think about my medication um and how how I how thoughts of why you were medicalized led you to think about why I was medicalized and um perhaps my reflection on my medicalization is uh in sync with yours in that it was unhelpful um and that what was more helpful were, were the were for you were the were the books and the ideas, uh, and for me were the was I suppose the same a similar type of content. Just instead of got um instead of consumed through books and ideas, I was able to consume it through, uh, work with a with a cognitive behavioral therapist. So,
1: well, just before you move on from that path, I would say that um the medication may have helped a bit, but. Had I got the therapy, had I got, you know, CBT or even talking therapy probably would have worked better and quicker. And also the other thing I'd like to say is that um, for the panic attacks, I was very glad of the Xanax that it did. I could feel as soon as I took one almost as soon. I would feel that oh, the wave of heat kind of and the my, everything being kind of calmed down. it did help me. Now I don't thankfully ever need them now, and I, I haven't had a panic attack in years and I don't know I don't remember when I, I last had one. but um, the medication did certainly help in, in that in that area.
0: Okay so um it's for for the chronic for the chronic experience of depression um you're on the fence maybe about antidepressants um in that it took a long time and maybe it's hard to disentangle that time period from all the books and the ideas you might have consumed during that time or is that an unfair representation
1: No I'd say that if I was guiding anybody who who was suffering from depression today I would certainly be recommending talk therapy, psychotherapies, cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, any of those before medication, for if I had ever was explained to me what a panic attack was, if I knew the physiology behind it, whereas I can I half know it today, but um, that would would have worked equally equally as as well as the xanax that i took yeah and at no risk to my health or yeah you know risk of being addicted to xanax
0: so yeah yeah so in the acute circumstance of a panic attack in the xanax did help you but you you think it it wasn't necessarily the only key to the whole absolutely not which revealed a solution um okay Okay well I think it's a it's an interesting distinction as well. like a, I think um, acute anti-anxiety medication for you is perhaps more valuable than a chronic antidepressants, um, which is perhaps something that uh, the listener might find interesting. Yes um, And now there are alternatives to acute, anti-anxiety medication, such as Xanax, uh, benzodiazepine which is, um, as mam correctly referred to, uh, is addictive and can be very damaging if uh, taken for chronic periods, taken over a chronic timescale, um, t- if taken chronically over a long time, um, but can be less harmful if taken in a few acute instances. But does uh, have does have a, a risk profile of addiction? Um, okay, that's really interesting, ma'am. So the part of the part the I think the final part of the big question I had there was about things you wish you could tell yourself. Are, are there any things you wish you could tell yourself, or are you happy with the knowledge you had at that time, or? If there was a time machine, would you leave a little note to yourself? Um, at a, at any time point, be like so. Be it in be it in Belf, be it in Belfield, be it in the schoolyard, be it in um the home place uh, after Dad died, um. Is there are are there little notes you would have liked if you had a time machine? Are there notes you'd like to leave for yourself that you could read from your uh, future, more experienced self?
1: Oh, there are certainly lots of little notes that I've left for myself, and um, you know, foremost being that you can do this. You have great strength. You're stronger than you think you are. You can do it. You things will get better. You will get the help that you need. You will survive this. Um, It won't last forever. The pain won't last forever. Um, And focusing on what you can be grateful for. I remember the first Christmas after your dad dying. Oh, I wanted to fast forward and get Christmas over and done. I didn't want to do Christmas and then it suddenly just came into my head we always loved christmas dad loved christmas we all love christmas now that he wasn't here didn't mean to say that we couldn't enjoy christmas we just be grateful we had him for as long as we did and that he was a good man and that he was part of our lives and that we would find the strength to to get enjoyment and we did and we celebrated that first Christmas even though it was difficult and we missed him and we talked about him and you know we laughed and joked and um, if you focus on the void or the absence or too long and don't, don't focus on the, what you have in your life you, it, it will lead to depression you have to be I really feel that from a very even selfish find, point of view you have to be grateful you have to realise that you know I I made myself write down what was I grateful for I'm, like, oh, I'm not grateful for anything no what was I to be grateful for and then I made myself realize I'm grateful for my four children. I'm grateful for my eyesight. I'm grateful for my hearing. I'm grateful for the fact that I can get up and walk. I'm grateful for that I have a car out to the door. I'm grateful that when I turn the key, it, it starts and it gets me from A to B. And just so many things. I have a roof over my head. It's paid for. You know, there was so much to be grateful for. And when you focused on what you had... You know, what you didn't have was a lot less, you know, but you just have to be grateful. You really have to be grateful for what's going right in your life rather than focusing on what has gone wrong, if you like. And you don't you don't see the bigger picture and you just, if you focus on lack, it just brings you down. Again, I suppose that's kind of a, you could misuse your imagination and, you know, saying, oh, woe was me, you know. Look at me and look at somebody else up the road that they have. Not only have they have their partner still alive, but they have a lovely car and they're going on holidays. And you can compare yourself to other people and feel, oh, my God, you know, they're so much better off. But you don't know. You don't know what problems there are behind those closed doors and, you know, focusing on having an attitude of gratitude for all that's going right in your life you have less time than to focus on what's missing.
0: Yeah. And I suppose undoubtedly there were days or maybe even weeks or months where you were very focused on what was missing. Um, And undoubtedly there were days where you looked at the family down the road with two uh, parents alive and working and um, kids that were happy out and not grieving um, and you, you compared yourself to them and consider yourself compared unfavorably um i suppose that i think it's it's normal to have those experiences but i think if if held in mind over chronic time scales or if if that thought process isn't uh challenged or if there isn't the corrective gratitude that comes it you will obviously be miserable and probably be depressed um and it's from everything you said there it sounds so you first the two first things you said that you'd like to kind of relate to yourself were you're stronger than you think and reminding yourself again that you can do this so i think there are two there are two beautiful things because you probably thought at the time that you were very weak um and maybe it was in those instances where you were thinking that you were weak or that you couldn't do it that. Uh, 20 or 30 or 40 or or 20 or 30 or 40 year older version of yourself could say no you're stronger than you think no you can't do this and this is coming from a a voice which is from a woman who is well from a woman who is able to reflect with gratitude um and then and then obviously you spoke a lot then about gratitude and it sounds like gratitude. Has been in the past an antidote to depression and an antidote to, I suppose, a lot of the suffering which has a ar- arisen in your life um, through through bereavement or through uh, challenging circumstances like like, uh, like college and like your like your work. Um, is that yeah. fair to say that gratitude holds that importance?
1: absolutely and another thing that i didn't know about until i didn't know at the time and if i could go back and leave that note for younger bernadette would be that um exercise so important so important and didn't know nobody ever told me um you know go for a good long walk go for a run um I didn't do. I, I started running when I was age 60. And, um, you know, if I had done some exercise, I started going to the gym. I'd say wasn't much off 60 when I started going to the gym, maybe 56 or 7. But well into my 50s before I started going to the gym and realised what a wonderful um, gift exercise is and how that can help your mental health so much. And to write down things as well. That's another note I would have put myself, uh, would would have left for my younger self, would be to write down some things that gives you joy. What gives you joy? Is it music? Is it walking? Is it running? Is it dancing? Uh, is it reading? What is it? And have those, uh, you know, on a little slip of paper in your pocket, you know, and take them out every so often. What you're grateful for, what, What brings you joy and do one of those things, you know, that that does bring you joy, like put on some of your music, go for a run. But I think now anybody that would be listening to or looking for help with depression or anxiety up there at the very top of the list, the first top three tips would be the importance of exercise.
0: Okay, Uh, okay, so. You're stronger than you think you can do it and exercise it's better than you think it'll be, probably. Yeah. No, it's more important than you realise.
1: Yeah, and you just feel so good because exercises releases these endorphins. Is that what they're called?
0: That's I suppose that's the phrase that people would use. Yeah,
1: yeah these. I had a little girl once in school and um she said she was on happy pill. There was supposed to be Teacher, I'm on happy pills, but they're not making me happy. So, and this was a very intelligent girl uh, who had Asperger's. And um, that girl, I don't think she was ever told about exercise.
0: Probably not. You know,
1: and like it would have done her such a world of good. I, I did with her. I used to go for a little run out in the field. And, you know, she reluctantly came, but she would, I noticed that she would always feel She'd be in better form when, when she when she did it, so like the basic thing like that that exercise is much better than any happy pill that you can swallow three times a day.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, you might be happy to hear that there are some uh, clinicians who are actually prescribing things like exercise.
1: Happy ah, days. So uh,
0: sometimes uh, if you if you have uh, if you have a clinician who is thinking clearly, that can be something that they can prescribe and they can give you a course of action. No, we just took a small batch and break there, but uh, during which ma'am remembered the name of the book she had referenced from the Limerick doctor, Dr. Terry Lynch, and the name of the book is Beyond Prozac. There is possibly a second author in there that is not coming to memory, but anyway, that's okay too.
1: Just before the break, we were talking about the importance of exercise.
0: Yes. So you had mentioned, it was there anything else that you'd like to explore about the importance of exercise?
1: Um, well, I certainly would have left that note for my younger self. Exercise yeah. is yeah. important.
0: Yeah. So you had the note. Yeah. So you had, uh, you had mentioned those two things that you'd like to revisit with yourself. And you had mentioned writing things down also, um, writing the things down that you're grateful for. And uh, yeah alluded to doing that as well but putting it on on your fridge and putting it on the mirror in your bathroom as well er, earlier on w- when you were speaking
1: there were positive affirmations and the affirmations, other thing was, I, I write so. down things that bring you joy because when you're depressed and listless and anxious you 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 forget you forget the things that actually bring you joy like music or a bit of comedy or you know
0: yeah, so they, it's, it's interesting that the written word, be it through reading or by actually writing writing yourself, seems to be extremely important to you. It seems to be one of the crucial ways in which you express yourself by having the courage to actually select the book which wasn't recommended to you by somebody else. That was a way in which you were able to express yourself you found a newfound way and which brought you a lot of meaning and then also actually writing down some of the things that you're grateful for was another way of expressing yourself. Obviously, you're speaking to me here today, so I'm guessing the spoken word is very important for you to express yourself, but you also mentioned exercise and dancing too in when you were talking about things you're grateful for, things that bring you joy. Uh, I was curious to hear um, how, how you express yourself today and... Uh, and are is there, is there a way do you, do you wish you express yourself in more ways or, or less? or do you, are you happy with how you express yourself today?
1: Um, no, I have a lot to learn in that department. I'm not good at self-care in that department. I wouldn't be good at saying no. I, my body would be saying no, but my mouth would be saying yes, no problem. And that's something I need to improve on. Um, Something else came to mind now and it's gone again. Um, Yeah, typically when I would be depressed today, if I was feeling a bit not so much depressed, it wouldn't be depression now because it it wouldn't it wouldn't be lasting. I'd be able to deal with it and, uh, change how I felt by whether I was going out for a run or listening to music or something. Uh, but typically, if I was having what you call maybe a down day or whatever, I wouldn't want to see people. I just wouldn't want to see people. Um, and if somebody's, if somebody. Happen to hear it in my voice. um, When I'd be talking to them. Maybe. Oh you sound a bit down. Would I go up to you? I'd immediately say no. I just. And I suppose that's something that I need to learn. To let somebody else. Help. Let somebody. Be vulnerable enough to let somebody. Say oh yeah. I'd love if you come up and but I'd rather be the one helping than the one needing help for some reason or other. Um, and I suppose that's something that I need to work on. To allow others to do for me what I very willingly do for them. Um, typically, I'd want to be on my own when I would be feeling the blues are feeling a bit down
0: and that sounds like a feeling which you don't want to the in a, in a clear mind you don't want to honor like you don't think that's a
1: no i don't think it's a it's a healthy way i think it's i think it's healthier to be to, to allow yourself to be vulnerable and to be able to say to another human being yeah i feel like crap uh, any chance that you could come in and we'll go for a walk or go for a cup of coffee or whatever. But typically I wouldn't. i just, don't come near me. Keep away. <laughs> Danger. I'd feel like putting up a sign on the door. Danger 24-7. Keep out. You know, I'd rather. Put, I don't think it's healthy.
0: Okay. Okay. And you said that you, you like to be the person that helps, but you don't like to be helped yourself.
1: Uh, it's not that I don't like to be helped myself. I certainly do like a bit of help now and again. If somebody comes to mow my lawns, yes, please. You don't or like
0: to be the person that needs to be helped. I Perhaps don't
1: like to be the person who needs to be helped. Yeah, for some reason or other, I seem to want to be the person who's who's not needy in any way. You know, I'm super, super able to do everything by myself, which is to me is not a healthy way to be. I think it would be a much healthier way to be able to ask for help if you need it or... Um not to expect people to oh notice that you need help. Um I don't think you know, I think maybe it's something that I've developed over the years, but to be, you know, Ms. efficient or Ms. independent and I don't think that's healthy. I think you're much better off being able to, yeah, oh, I need a bit of help. Okay. Come round.
0: Okay. So despite being, despite holding the wisdom you have now and despite reflecting on the challenges you have had earlier on with some distance, you're still able to say that, you know, you have a lot to learn and that you don't have it all sorted out or sussed.
1: No, I don't think we ever have it all sorted. I think the day you stop learning you're dead. You know, we learn, you you know, at night time I try to think of a number of things that I have been grateful for that day. Maybe at least one thing that I've learned that day. And, you know, just before curling up and going off to sleep. I think that's a useful thing to do, to say what you're grateful for. Say what you've learned and say maybe even think of one thing or one area in your life where you'd like to improve.
0: Yeah. And so I, guess, I suppose our conversation uh, thus far has largely highlighted some of the biggest challenges you've had. And I think oftentimes when the idea of emotional well-being or well-being come, or even even the likes of health, when these, are, when these ideas are brought up in conversation where uh, we think about when well-being isn't, where it should be or health isn't where we want it to be um but for uh, what I what I wish for people to think of as well as those things when they hear the phrase well-being that they also think of uh, the joyous uh, experiences in their lives in their lives um and the salient moments not only which were extremely challenging but which were perhaps high points in their life so with that in mind, when you're when you reflect now, you've mentioned you've you've alluded and mentioned a couple of um kind of the difficult experiences you had and the inner experience of it. But I suppose now I'd invite you to reflect on some of the most joyous experiences you have had, um, as 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 Bernadette McKeown, not as my mother, um, but as as Bernadette McKeon, so it doesn't have to be the birth of your fourth child.
1: <laughs> well, that certainly was a very <laughs> joyous moment. Wasn't so joyous for a while before you were born, Pat, because you weren't in any hurry. No, but uh, it certainly was very joyous when you were born.
0: But no, all seriousness, it had reached it perfection. C- it could be, it could be in your, ch- it could be from your childhood, it could be from your uh from your education it could be from your career it could be from uh, your romantic life with dad it could be from being a parent it could be from being a teacher it could be from being a daughter i'm just curious to hear um what if you could press if you could relive if there were any experiences which you could relive what would you relive because i don't think you'd necessarily like to relive some of the challenging ones we said earlier um but if you could re, if you could feel like it felt to do a certain thing again, if you could feel like the way you felt when if when you did something that just brought you so much joy, what could uh, what what would that be? Or when did what 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 are the standout moments of your life where you were just elated or that were just so wondrous for you?
1: Wow, I never thought of those. I'm sure I did, but um yeah, there's some standout moments well most of them would probably have got to do with with um yourself and your three siblings with your own achievements and uh, getting things done and things like that. but I suppose in recent years the the biggest the thing that brought me most joy was um. Getting the courage to fly on my own for the first time since my husband died. And um, that was in 2019, I think. Going to Doha to see Adan. Your son. My son. Getting on that plane (laughs) and going to Doha. (laughs) You almost, you know, you had encouraged me a lot and brought me to the airport and... Uh, you know, did everything possibly but walk, <laughs> possible but walk out of the plane for me, and then on the other side, Aidan and his fiance Megan was there to meet me. That was that brought great joy. The fact that I eventually got the courage to do something that I wanted to do for so long, but um, I always felt too nervous to do. Um,
0: sorry, Guama?
1: having the courage to take a career break
0: before before we mention ha- uh, the courage to have a t- career break um I think I think there's something beautiful about that, um, that finding finding independence in your you know not late adulthood but like in your 60s like you are able to feel absolute joy and wonder and ecstasy at doing something independent as a fully fledged adult who ra- who successfully raised four children who had retired in their career but yet you could achieve or that yet you could have that uh, sense of achievement for something that somebody else might find inconsequential in their early life to fly, to fly by themselves but that you were able to see that as a, as you were able to see that through the momentous lens that it warranted. And also you're able to, um, relish in the, in the victory over, um, challenge and the victory over fear. Uh, fear that you had. So I think, I think that's worth, uh, I think that's worth side of written and worth noting as, uh, as, a as a lovely thing that you can, that you can pinpoint. Um, which uh, sorry you you
1: yeah no it was a, it was it was really I I probably didn't get that across as well as I could have it was so joyous so wonderful you know I had to pinch myself on the plane a few times you're actually doing it you know you're actually doing this which you have wanted to do for so long and you didn't allow yourself to do it you let fear stop you and uh, I was kicking fear in the ass and I was doing it and it was. It was wonderful and what a lovely, brilliant, the most brilliant holiday ever um, that I had. It was just absolutely amazing and um, I was... You know, as far as I was concerned, the other side of the world on my own and Aidan and Megan had to go to work and I was sitting by the pool with my book and in my element, going to the gym on my own, doing things that I normally would have to have somebody with me and here I was doing it and I was well capable of doing it. Um. And I wasn't giving my power away to fear or anything else. That was just wonderful. and couldn't wait to do it again and was doing it again until COVID scuppered my plans. But I I haven't done it once now. There's no reason why I wouldn't do it again. Also, another thing I've been threatening to do for uh, a long, long time. And again, probably letting fear stop me was to go online and go on a date which I did very recently. Um, Is it a week or two weeks ago now? (laughs) It seems a long time ago. But actually uh, put a profile up and um, didn't care. Just did it. Just did it. And um, met a nice guy and uh, he invited me out to dinner and I said, yes, why not? So... It was lovely getting ready and having my daughter up here. Helping me to get ready and choose my outfit. It was lovely and energising. And, um, you know, we close ourselves off from life so often by crazy ideas in our head. And there's life there. And just, we don't grab it and go for it. We allow all sorts of crazy things to stop us. And I'm done with that. I'm letting nothing stop in Benji anymore. Just go for it. So what if it works out? It works out. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't. But don't deny yourself pleasures that are there for the taking. Yeah. Another achievement 145 years ago was when I decided to do, it was called TM. Transcendental Meditation was something I wanted to do. And it was expensive, as far as I remember. I can't remember how expensive it was, but according to your dad, it was very expensive. <laughs> and he was, he called himself the financial advisor in the house because me and money just comes and goes. And I don't give a as I just spend it. Whereas he would be far more he would have been far more conscientious and um, thoughtful and measured about how he would spend it. So he thought this TM course was ridiculously expensive. And um, I thought, you know what? something went wrong in the car tomorrow, we'd find the money to fix it. I'm going on this course. And it was the first time I ever um, went against his his
0: his wish
1: or his (laughs) financial wisdom. Uh, I just says, no, I'm doing it. And uh, I didn't feel good about doing it because, you know, we did kind of agree on everything we did uh, together and if there was a financial outlay, yeah, we kind of agreed on it. Or if I didn't agree, I mightn't have agreed, but I... I um, succumbed to his superior wisdom on all things financial, which, looking back and was ridiculous. So um, I decided I was going to do this um, meditation course, and I did it. And the freedom I felt, oh, I'm after doing something that somebody else didn't approve of. Somebody significant, some a significant other didn't approve of, and I said to hell with the consequences. I am doing it, and it was a great, it was a great thing to do because later on when I was doing the meditation, Eamon asked me, "Well, what do you do? How do you do this?" And he joined in in the meditation, so you know it was a win-win situation. But I felt freedom from. Being a people pleaser, which I would have been kind of all my life, you know. I I couldn't do something that would cause displeasure to another human being, which is bullshit. You have to live your life by your own lights. And sometimes people will pat you on the back for doing it. And sometimes people won't. And But I've learned to be, I think I've learned... To give that freedom to my own adult children and to my children as they were growing up to make mistakes, even though I could see that they were making mistakes. But I knew that. They had to live by their own lights, and I think that parents who lay down the law, you know, under my roof, you're doing ABC and X, Y and Z, they're making a grave mistake because children are going to do what they feel is the right thing to do. Anyway, and you just won't know about it. Whereas if you give them the freedom in as far as possible, um, they'll tell you about their lives. You know, but this, you know, um, being a control freak is is definitely, definitely, no doubt about it, the wrong way to go in parenting. And... Um, yeah, that was. It took me enough a long time to pick up the courage to do something against my partner's wishes. You know, he didn't say I couldn't do it, but he certainly didn't encourage me to do it. We couldn't afford it, and I thought, "Fact, this we can afford it. You know, and um, we will survive." And we did survive, and we both benefit from it. Um,
0: That's lovely. That's lovely, man. Sorry, yeah. I, uh, I wanted to just interject there for a moment to um off the mic earlier. You mentioned wanting to read a book and um, that you had heard of about um the regrets that people have mm. when they're dying. And uh, um, although I don't know, although I'm not close to the literature on, on that, I do know one thing from it. Um, and uh, as I understand, people don't the greatest regrets that people have in later life are the things that they didn't do so now they, i think generally people don't regret things they did do they more regret they regret more the things that they didn't do so there was something that you did you did the trans- transcendental meditation um you did flight to doha you know easily couldn't have. and that if you didn't do the transcendental meditation if you didn't flight to doha and if you didn't pick that book up by uh, Brachanuck, by Sarah Van If you didn't do those things and you felt like it might be something worth doing, um, those are the things, the kind of things you'd regret. And the, these uh, these things that are bringing, that bring you so much joy and they bring light to your eyes when you recall them. They're all things that you did do when, yes. you, when you easily cut off. So that's, I think that's, um, I think maybe worth highlighting for me for you and for anybody else who might be uh, considering something that they think might bring them great joy but oh they won't do it because oh they should prioritize you know saving money for their rainy day fund or they should prioritize you know um getting a good night's sleep or whatever um that weekend or whatever the case might be no don't try not to leave yourself in a space where you're going to regret doing the thing that you didn't do and uh, seize the opportunity and its associated challenges uh, because ultimately that will maybe bring you some fulfillment.
1: Yes, I think the, the book is The Five Regrets and across cultures it's the same five regrets. It's, it's never the things that people have done but the pe- things that they haven't done. So... um must write out my bucket list, but definitely going to Doha. I might have forgotten about the Transcendental Meditation one, but I certainly going to Doha uh, was one I, I won't forget. There was another one that I really enjoyed doing, even though I was very scared, was the skiing holiday. Um, I met a friend of mine and she said to me down in the local hotel, oh, you're not coming on the skiing holiday? I said, what skiing holiday? So apparently um at the time somebody had decided for me that i wouldn't enjoy a was and going on a skiing holiday and i thought what the hell with that i yes i am going i didn't know anything about it i didn't know that i had i had said no to a skiing holiday and i said yes i am going and i'm terrified of heights And I'm terrified, or I was terrified of heights, and I was terrified of snow and falling on ice. And um, here was I going on a skiing holiday. And I remember having to stop the bus going up this mountainous hill in Italy because it just suddenly dawned on me. Oh my God, I'm doing the most scariest things ever. I'm going on a skiing holiday and I'm going up mountains and both." things terrify me so the bus driver had to stop while I got sick out the door uh, off the bus and I had to stop twice on the ascent to Livigno L-I-V-I-G-N-O L-I-V-I-G-O, I think that was the name of the resort we went to but one of the best holidays of my life my aunt had fallen I think I told you this before my aunt Bridget had fallen as a child and she ended up with Um, because they didn't have the the medical help that they have now, uh, she ended up with one leg shorter than the other. It didn't develop properly because she had a bad fall on ice. And she used to have a shoe that was built up to make the two legs the same. And so because my parents had experienced that with my father's sister, um they were always well be careful on the ice be careful on the snow blah 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 so i grew up with that fear of falling on ice and here i was going on a ski calendar (laughs) where you're guaranteed to fall but again because somebody else had decided for me that you know yeah wasn't going i thought no hell no, nobody's making decisions for me. I am going and I went and it was one of the better holidays I've ever had in my life. Doing something that I was terrified of doing but did it anyway. So like as I forget who the author is again now but uh, the book is Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. You know, not not to let fear of something, fear of failure or fear of falling stop you from doing things. Just do it because um, you're denying yourself so much joy and pleasure if you allow fear to stop you from doing things that you would really like to do um, it was a very joyous holiday that one um, what else oh I was standing up to a person in authority was another thing that brought me great joy um somebody who had wronged me in the past and they were in a position of authority over me and um i said no i'm not letting them away with this so i went and rang the door their doorbell and told them um that what they had done was wrong and that I had no doubt in my mind they tried to excuse themselves and blame it on somebody else but I stood up to them and told them under you know no uncertain terms that they knew what I had done was wrong and that I knew it and I was just letting them know I felt really powerful after that Uh, again just not letting an authority figure uh, away with something that they shouldn't have got away with I challenged them and um, the same authority figure went to jail for um, abusing children. <laughs> so, uh, Jesus, yeah. So it's very important to not to let not to let anybody steal your joy and get away with it, you know. And it's not an easy thing to do to go and challenge somebody who's, you know, your boss or whatever, but that would be a regret you'd have, I think, on your deathbed if you didn't do it.
0: Especially if you learned they were a beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus fucking Christ.
1: Um, It's interesting
0: that you say you got great joy from that, because that sounds like it would be a real challenge. That sounds like, but I suppose you got a lot of satisfaction, a lot of personal satisfaction from it. I
1: got great joy. I thought, fair play to you, that was a difficult thing to do. Okay. this guy was a lot taller than me and it was raining, I remember all the details, me being the little kind of, the little midget on the motorway and he, the big the big towering um oh, machine, whatever big, big bus double decker bus towering over me and uh, I was able to look, he wasn't able to look me in the eye but I was able to look up straight into his face and tell him what you did was wrong and you know it and he tried to blame somebody else and I says, no don't do that you know that's not right and um, I felt really I felt empowered and I felt good and I felt yeah it was the right thing to do
0: okay so it's, it's funny it seems like justice is uh, is important to you there like the, there was an injustice at play with the skiing trip, um, when your decision was made for you in yes. the in the beginning, and in this instance, it sounds like there was maybe a decision made that um, was unjust, and then even maybe a uh, an unjust implicit decision that you had made not to fly alone after dad died, um, and then writing writing that wrong and making a making a just decision and restoring a bit of justice in your own life and. Uh, restoring that independence uh kind of executed some justice as well like it seems like maybe uh, when when you witness when you bear witness to justice uh, being done for yourself or and um, justice being meted out to other people um Perhaps that that's something that brings you great joy. Is that a, is that Absolutely, a form of joy? That, that yeah, you've
1: really, I've uh, never thought of it like that before, but you've hit the nail on the head because there was another incident where um, we your dad and I switched traditional roles of, you know, the man was the breadwinner way back then when we got married, and the woman was the housekeeper, you know. So, because um, my husband had health issues, uh, and then when we had children, we had dis- we decided that we didn't want to put them in crashes, or we didn't want a childminder. We wanted one of us to be looking after them. So, um, when our first child was born, it was easy enough because Granny was well enough. My mother was well enough and she looked after her because I had a short day at school, nine to three. So I was home half three. I was able to take over the responsibility of looking after Michelle. But um, then when the second child was born, it was it would have been too much for my mum. So I kind of thought at the time, oh, I'll give up, you know, because that was the dumb thing and Eamon thought oh, it would be a daft thing to do I had a better job than he had done. and he said he'd give up so um, that's what we decided on anyway and um, then a situation arose where he had to go on dialysis and because he when he gave up working he didn't sign on for unemployment benefit he lost all his contributions, social welfare contributions, and he was entitled to nothing, even though at this stage we needed to find an extra fifty pound a week, which was a lot of money back then to pay for somebody to look after um the children while I was at work. So um three days a week and it was what it was going to cost was fifty pounds. And how are we going to get that money? So he was, in fact, the woman who was staying at home and was entitled to nothing. And I saw the injustice of that and I thought it was so terrible. Had he signed on for unemployment benefit, his contributions would have covered it or whatever. I don't know how these the social welfare works, but... It worked uh, at the time. If that's what would have worked at the time. But he didn't because he was very honest. And uh, despite people arguing with him, you are available for work, he was saying, I'm not available for work, so I can't sign on for unemployment benefit. And um, there was one man in particular who was great at arguing with him and telling him, Yeah, you are available. You're available from four o'clock every evening when I was back home and had relieved the babysitter. And he was available. And he says, No, I'm not going to work at that you know, by the letter of the law, you're available. But he wasn't signed on anyway. Make a long story shorter. And, um, and sorry, then so
0: when we... Just to clarify, ma'am, the child mind was needed because dad was going to be at dialysis. and He you was on dialysis, anymore. yeah. Three three
1: days a week he had to go for a dialysis for because of kidney function. So, um we were entitled, to you know, and I just thought that was so wrong and so unfair and so unjust. So, I went to Everybody and anybody and politicians and whatnot, and was very upset time and time again because I was told no, there's nothing that could be done, and so on and so forth. But in the end, I persevered. I just saw the injustice, and I kept persevering until I got justice for my husband, and he was allowed, a, I forget what it was disability benefit or whatever, which allowed us to pay. For somebody to look after
0: the children, fifty pound or, or something like it a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, just and again in that instance, justice was meted out. So it's it's funny. It's just so joy. Joy would be what you would be the word you'd use to to put a name on the experience you had when you were successful. Oh, like, oh, absolutely,
1: because doors were were banged on my face time and time again, and yeah. I was told nearly how dare I look for anything and I so well off and I a teacher and how dare I it was it was just unbelievable the way, I, uh, unbelievably bad the way I was treated. Unjust? So unjust and I saw the injustice of it and I said no I'm not definitely not putting up, putting up okay. with this and shutting up and I kept working at it until yeah
0: you were able and to I secure was, uh, circumstances for your husband for yourself yeah, and also for yeah, your children yeah because so i
1: knew he felt so bad that he was no longer able to through no fault of his own he ill health and through no fault of his own he was no longer able to contribute financially and now he was put in a position where he couldn't contribute you know to be there as as a caring parent for his own children and that there will He was contributing nothing to the family that he was responsible for. Mm. You know, And you can imagine how how useless he could have felt and uh, did feel. But thankfully, you know, I worked for that and it it, it, um, brought me great joy when I when I finally succeeded, despite door after door being slammed in my face. Mm.
0: Yeah so and overcoming the challenge as well. Yeah. So there's was probably I do you, do you, when you reflect now to return somewhat back to your experiences of depression and and panic attacks do you do you reflect with joy over having um kind of overcome those things or or is is that the or is that the right am I am I using the wrong phrase or am I missing the mark
1: Oh, I'm very, very grateful. I don't know if joy, joy is the word. So it was a, sa- a, to-
0: a separate experience, a distinct yeah. experience. From, yeah, okay. yeah,
1: very grateful that um, I succeeded in not going under, but know how close I was to going under and knowing that suicide did enter my head. I didn't think I was ever going to do it, but it certainly entered my head time and time again. You know, and I went to to places where, you know, this is a possible place where I could do it. But I still felt at the back of my head I wasn't going to do it. But I was in places where I had gone to with that thought foremost in my mind. And that's why I'd be so angry with... That's not the only reason why I'd be so angry with people who think it's an easy option for somebody and that, that people that um make that horrendous choice of ending their life that it's an easy option. It's not an easy option. It's an option that is horrendously difficult. Must be. I, I didn't I didn't go the whole hog and didn't make any attempt, but I went to places where, yeah, there were possible places where I could put an end to my misery and my suffering. But, um, you know, for anybody to judge another human being for, you know, for um, taking that final desperate act, it, it's so wrong so so wrong because i don't think anybody could possibly choose suicide as an easy option it's not an easy option it's it's a horrible horrible place to be
0: yeah
1: yeah how do we get from being joyous to
0: well, you, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Man. I suppose what I was talking, I asked you, um, did you experience joy when you reflect on how y- you're not in the place you were? And he uh, said that joy wasn't the right word, but that you were very grateful, and uh, that gratitude brought you to to think about, I suppose, how you're not uh, in that space because you you thought of the very worst circumstance you were in and you I suppose how you got to there, how you got to speak about that was to say how grateful you are that you're not there. Yes. Um which is certainly something that you should be grateful for and it's certainly something that everybody that gets to call you Mam and mammo and Auntie Ben and Mrs. McKeon and Benji and all the Bernie and all the rest that all those people of which of which I am included are extremely grateful for as well um and uh, that can be something on all of our gratitude list
1: because no, absolutely yeah That yeah, that somehow i got the grace that was needed to um overcome the challenges that people face and sometimes i guess everybody just doesn't get that grace or doesn't get the the help that they need at a particular time. I was blessed that I did. Very blessed.
0: You were fortunate enough. To be able to triumph over. The unjust circumstances. You had. And sometimes. Unfortunate people. Aren't. Able to triumph over their own. The, unju- the unjust circumstances. They find themselves in. Yeah. And. um, I think. I think maybe that's the distinguishing factor for you and for somebody else in similar circumstances who uh, does meet uh, the unfortunate end to their lives, which um, they which they executed. Um, and uh, the jo, jo, I suppose I think because it's important. Although I hadn't intended on asking you about it. Um, the, the thoughts of suicide the thoughts of ending your own life did they is that a theme which you can thread across your you know multiple uh, instances in your life over your life history or is there like a, a particularly acute instance where it was uh, a, you know a major challenge or was it uh, more of an intrusive thing at different times or was there one major intrusion which you can Which you can put your finger on.
1: No, I'd say you describe it rightly there when you say it was an intrusive thing that happened on multiple occasions. You know, but um, I never felt that I was going to actually execute it. But as I said, it was there. The thought was there. I was in, I had left my house to go to a place where you know, it could be, it could have been executed. Even though I didn't, looking back, and now I don't think I was actually going to do it ever. But the thought was there, and I was blessed and fortunate enough to be able to have left those places and um, ha- having not execute, having let the thought go away why it went away, how it went away I don't know but thankfully it did go away
0: Okay, so you think you visited places with like a a pseudo intention to end your own life?
1: No like we'd say I think of a particular day now I was feeling very down and very very low and very depressed and I ended up going to a place and sitting in that place and am thinking hmm, I could I could end it all here. That's as far as it went. It didn't go any further than that. I didn't think how I'd end it or anything else. But this is. And that I did that on a number of occasions. You'd be alone. Oh, I would. Of course. Of course. And at times I was feeling very, very lonely and very alone in a crowded room. And I, I often thought, Nigel, I am feeling <laughs> feeling so bad, and not one person here is aware of how I am actually feeling at the moment. And it was very often, as we say, maybe a party situation where everybody would seemingly be enjoying themselves, and uh, I, this is the these are the dark thoughts that were in my head. So I'd be always kind of aware that. Um, you know. That somebody else could be thinking that way, you know, I hope that nobody is thinking and I'd be thinking more. Oh, I hope nobody's thinking like the way I thought, you know, because I think that's a worse place to be in, to be in in a building where everybody is seemingly enjoying themselves and having a crack and you are feeling so low and so, so down. But again, thankfully by whatever power um i was able to rise above that awful feeling and
0: and you don't and you don't know you don't know why you don't know what it is
1: what it is that causes this
0: no i i suppose my question is to be more precise um have we already discussed the reasons why that feeling that feeling that you described at having at a party or that feeling you described that you would have when you would visit a, a particular place uh, when thoughts of suicide would enter your mind can you have we already discussed the reasons why those instances don't happen anymore or do they do they still happen? No no they,
1: they okay. haven't happened in years okay Not in years I'd say.
0: So do you know they why just, they haven't happened in years? Sorry. Do you know why they haven't happened, happened in years? Can you, or have we already discussed all the reasons, such as the mantras and um, the books?
1: Yeah, I say they would all be be uh, reasons why they haven't happened, and that I'm I'm able to realize that thoughts are fleeting, like the clouds. They they come and they go, and you don't, you know, you don't. I wasn't give attention to any thought that was very dark now and just say, you're not for me now bye bye, you know
0: you'd wave it on
1: I would definitely wave it on, most definitely um, but way back then maybe I would, would have entertained them and focused on them and thought oh how, how rotten my life is But now I I realise and I compare them to clouds. And, you know, you have a blue sky, but sometimes there's clouds and they they come and go and you have dark clouds. But, you know, the blue sky is always there and your your happy self is always there. But sometimes that you can be... The sun can be blotted out by... um, the clouds, but they're only fleeting. They're not, they're not there to stay, and they're not there for me. And if I don't feed them with my time, they will disappear. You know, the they come and they go. They're not, they're not for me.
0: Okay, so today you feel more powerful and more in control than you felt in those moments yes
1: absolutely and i think that's something that should be taught to children in primary school not wait till they're struggling teenagers with hormones raging and so on and so forth that children should be taught from a very young age that you know you have thoughts and that they come and they go and that you know compare them to the clouds or compare them to as is done in we'll say headspace you know, on a you're on a busy highway, you you cannot pay attention to every car that's coming and going and coming and going, but they're you know, they're changing all the time and uh the only way that we can that they can take our power away from us and leave us feeling powerless is that if we feed them with time. So we just need to wave them on and realise that uh they have no power over us if we don't feed them. And the way you feed thoughts is to give them time and um, ponder on sadness. And if you do that, it it it's it can be very dangerous.
0: So part of the power and control you have now is uh, is is a type of mindfulness or perhaps maybe the most important part of that power and control you have having is, is mindfulness, is that fair to say?
1: Yes yes and to be awareness more than kind of I think mindfulness can be a misnomer in a way that your mind is kind of full of stuff but you know that if you're aware that these are just thoughts and that they're passing through it's better and to you know to have a way of distancing yourself from those thoughts by we'll say focusing on your breath you know breathing in and breathing out and going for a walk in nature or that you have a way that you're in control that not these these fleeting thoughts mm. are not in control okay
0: so the the insight and the insight of awareness has is is what that power and what yes. that control is is made up of?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, interesting one. Uh, so, to kind of change tack or tact a little bit or to change direction a little bit, it's still all about you, but I'm curious to hear who your inspirations are or who your role models are and uh, Who you feel have helped mold you into the person you've become, and what was it about those people, Um, or maybe just even an individual person, whatever, whichever way you'd like to discuss it. What is it about that person or those people that inspired you so much, and that you like, that you wish to model? And that you have wished to model over the course of your life?
1: Yeah, well, not something I've ta- thought about very much, but my mother would have been a great inspiration to me. She was very. She seemed to be very even tempered and she had a lot of. She would have had a lot of difficulties and a lot of challenges in her life, but um, she adapt she was very adaptable she adapted to all the changes she um like she lived for a hundred years she was born in 1917 and died in 2017 and as you can imagine over that amount of time she saw a lot of changes uh particularly we'll say in the church which would have been a huge part of her life but she she embraced change and she coped with change and she you know uh, whereas older uncles and aunts who were sisters and brothers of mum and dad uh, would have been given out about you know women not covering their heads, going into the church, she would see the funny side of that. <laughs> it's so hilarious. Men have to cover their heads. Men have to uncover their heads, going into a church. And women have to cover it. And she could see the stupidity of that. And um, she she just adapted to change. Like microwave, was no problem to her. Even if she had a mobile phone for a while. And if, if people didn't... Paro had her, she would have had it until the day she died. She just, she was very adaptable. And I think being adaptable and being willing to change and be willing to, she was willing to change her mind and she was open, like to discussing everything from gayness to, um,
0: you know, I you mean
1: homosexuality. homosexuality is what I, I mean. Yeah, you know, that you could discuss things like that with her who grew up with men were men and women were women. And there was no other way about it. But, you know, you could have loads of chats with her about everything and anything. And she was open minded. She like, I think what causes an awful lot of pain and trouble for people is not only have their closed minds, but they're firmly bolted from the inside. And, you know, they're unwilling to change and unwilling to bend. She she was willing to go with the flow and change with the times and embrace change and embrace so much. So she was a huge influence on me. And she also, when I was getting married, <laughs> she gave me one bit of advice. just don't be a quietina. now no danger of me ever being a quiety but anyway she said that and I, I guess it was from her own life she was, she quietly put up with a lot of things that she might not have put up don't with but she was telling me not to do the same, don't be a quiety. So I certainly wasn't a quiety. Um, I had a teacher too, primary school teacher who was a lovely lovely, lovely human being and she taught me a lot. Um, again, she was like my mom and that she embraced change and was open, an open person. Another two two teachers in secondary school, one Marguerite Staunton, who said, We were the creme de la creme. She always told us that we were the creme de la creme. Now we went to the tech, so we were not not um the creme de la creme in the Navin community of schools who we weren't going to Mercy Convent or Loretto Convent. I remember when I went to university, that was one of the things that niggled me a lot. Oh, which convent in Navin did you go to? And I kind of thought, oh, I didn't go to either of them. But I was nearly afraid to say I went to the tech. I was the first student ever from a technical school, first from Navin Technical School or Navin Vocational School, as it was laterally called, who went to university. Because typically if you went to the tech, you went out on your service after leaving SART. You went to be a waitress or whatever. So I was the first to go to university. Even though I retired fairly quickly. But did go back uh, and did my degree in psychology and philosophy. Um, other people that inspired She inspired me and another teacher that inspired me was Mary Sweeney. Mary Hardiman. She was a PE teacher, and I loved PE, and she kept me going to school because I used to go for, used to go for the physical education, for the games, for netball and for badminton and for, you know, games after school, and she used to make sure that we all had a lift, had we away getting home after the match, and of course I lied, I said yes, and I walked the eight miles from Navin home. And as my daughter, she was here, would add, in your bare feet, ma'am, on the glass. But no, I'd had my runners. But, um, yeah, uh, I'm proud of those challenges that I surmounted. And uh, What was the question now?
0: People that inspired All you. All people so that you inspired me, yeah. Uh, Ma- Mary, Mary Hardiman. Mary Hardiman, um, Marguerite Staunton. Staunton, and, and your mother, Mary my Flood. My
1: mother, Mary Flood, for sure. Um... Yeah, I'm sure there were others as the, the, well.
0: The, those are the three that spring to mind.
1: Yes, they the three that spring to mind,
0: yeah. And for... For Marguerite Stans and for Mary Flood... Effectually uh, known by a lot of people... A lot of people as Granny. Um, and who I always knew as Granny. The traits in those people that... ring Ring out loud and clear was an openness and also an adaptability um, and the
1: love of other people you know lo- she granny as you call her loved other people and she I think thrived because she had people around her always she wouldn't have been I don't think she would have would have been often lonely because she attracted people to her to her because of her smile and her... Or joy, her joie de vivre. She was alive and joyful. She was a joyful person.
0: Uh, but she was. She was so fu- sorry to interrupt you, ma'am. She was so full of love and joy that she shared it with everybody.
1: She did absolutely. She radiated. She absolutely radiated love and joy. And I remember being horrified when I went to my. I think it was my second job, maybe my third job as a teacher, hearing people, colleagues talk kind of maybe disrespectfully of their mother in particular. I couldn't understand that. It was something that was so foreign to me that I, I could never say a bad word about my mother. Could never. She was just such a loving, loving person, joyous person, willing to share Everything. You know, um whenever anybody came in they were they were fed. And it would sadden me, you know, today that unless your name was on the path if you arrived at a house this you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't be included. Yeah. Like there was a big family of us and no matter who came, and if it was tomorrow's dinner that was in the fridge, a bit of ham that was boiled for the following day, that would have been cut up. And there would have been something found for the next day, yeah. and she would have done without to give it to others. She got great joy in giving; she just exemplified that, and yeah, she just loved. She exuded love and joy.
0: Yeah, and so excuse me, Gra- Granny Mary Flood comes, uh, comes out, comes up in the context of being a role model and an ins- and an inspiration so with that in mind those are things that you uh, try to model in your life oh
1: yes I would try to try to um, make people feel welcome in, in my home she, mom would have always wanted wanted an education for us the older ones had to work of necessity and you know as a, as as um, she got older and wiser, she wanted so much for the younger ones to get get something that she didn't get. She got primary education. So the dad, neither of them got a chance at secondary, but she ensured that we got secondary education. And when we wanted to go to third level, she wasn't able to support us financially, but she certainly supported us. Yeah, go for us, And, you know, which we did. And it was did us no harm that you know did me no harm that I had to work every chance I got you know every summer holiday was a working holiday and I worked from factory work to waitress work to shop work you know and um, you just had to do it And I put myself through college and that gives me the I suppose the what I'd say to people is, if you want it badly enough, you can do it. There might be a lot, of, a lot of obstacles in your way, but there's a way to do it if you want to do it badly enough. And that parents make a lot of mistakes by removing obstacles from their children's lives, you know, smoothing the path out for them. Not a good idea. Let your children, let the obstacles be there. Let them find ways of... um manoeuvring themselves around them by giving too much to your children you're doing them a disservice Uh, in my case because um, my children's father was absent I tried to do I tried to be mother and father because there was such a huge absence there and I probably did a disservice by trying to be you know um too much there because children learn by meeting the challenges head on and having to having to be resilient to find a way through things and it does them no harm and I'm a great believer in the golden rule of parenting is don't do anything for your child that they, they can do for themselves in the main you know um don't take every blade of grass <laughs> out of the way on the path. Let them go barefoot. Let them dance in puddles. Let them let them be children. Don't wrap them up in cotton wool and throw sugar at them.
0: <laughs> it's funny. So I'd say through circumstance, anyway, Granny wasn't able to uh, pave pave the way to Bellefield for you, or she to, certainly wasn't, or doesn't. to line or to line your your purse with you know lots of pocket money for um parties and all that kind of crack that was that wasn't on the cards well you also you alluded to there it's just worth um uh, pushing back a little bit against that uh so obviously i'm was fortunate enough to have a dad alive for the excuse me for the first nearly the first three years of my life and um telling you how
1: shocking good child yeah, you are
0: indeed but also um i um i can say with great confidence today that um i'm very grateful to you for being an uh, absolutely <laughs> to use dad's phrase an absolutely brilliant mother um but also an absolutely brilliant father so um you certainly didn't do too much for me um I don't think you did too much for any of our siblings. And I don't mean that as a strike against you. We, you let us experience our own our own challenges. You let us make uh, what were seeming mistakes, um, which caused us a lot of heartache, heartache at the time. But I think, which at least I'll speak for myself, I can reflect on now and say, okay, that, that experience was very costly to me at the time. And my mother was in a position to... Um, bend the needle uh, towards me taking a more correct course of action but she didn't and she was right not and I'm grateful that she didn't and um, so thank you for letting us and um, quote unquote make our own mistakes uh, because ultimately they weren't mistakes they were things that enabled us to become smarter and um, more adaptable people uh, Depending on on what we were going to face in the future and on what I will face in the future, so thank you for that, Mum. But so so gra- so gr- your mother, uh, my granny, inspired a lot in you, and I think from from my perspective, and I think um, the reason you are Mammo is because, uh, you had Mammy. You know, if, the reason the reason your grandchildren love you so much today is because I had such a wonderful grandmother, your mother. Um, and the reason you're, that you, myself and my three siblings have had the benefit of a wonderful, incredible mother is in large part due to you having a wonderful, incredible mother. So I think um, you, I think granny is quite literally smiling down on us here at the moment. Uh, she's catching my eye every so often. There's a, a beautiful picture of her here um, over the fireplace, um, smiling. And she is uh, smiling down on us. And you do your uh, mother a service, a uh, wonderful service every day and have done uh, every day of your life um, by showing lots of love and lots of kindness and by not being a quietie. <laughs> <laughs>
1: thank you Pat but uh, you know the, the smile there uh, in, in the photograph you know it's a great thing to do to smile because there's nothing more beautiful than a smile and a smile evokes a smile in somebody else as the, the little poem says smiling is infectious it can be caught like the flu like, I won't recite it all because I can't but um, and, and to remember maybe to do a smiling meditation you know, when you're feeling blue, just force a smile and you know, she she um, by her smile, she just inspired people. And by her joy, she inspired people. And to be grateful to have that, I had that experience. Lots of people don't have the mother that inspires joy and the mother that inspires love and We have to be sympathetic to them as well and to realise that, I suppose, um, everybody needs more love than they deserve at times. You know, people behave in poor ways and obnoxious ways at times. And, you know, maybe we're inclined to lash out at them and say, well, fuck you too. But maybe what they need is somebody to just give them that extra bit of love that they that might, might never have got in the home situation you know, we are fortunate I'm fortunate, you are fortunate even though you've had difficulties but um, there are some people who have all the difficulties and have very little love but like if you look around you all anybody wants is is love to be loved and to be recognised and you know and there's not enough, there's probably not enough in people's lives
0: yeah, yeah it's a it's a, a beautiful sentiment I think that people uh, need more love than they deserve because the idea of deserve is something that we kind of make up like uh, so kind of justice is somewhat of a human construct and sometimes it's great to meet it out and um, and, but I think in in other times, uh, sometimes justice is meted out by showing somebody a lot of love. When maybe in our culture it might it mightn't be the thing that's prioritised, and I suppose we don't need to show love. Love can be shown in kind of in in different ways. Um, true either, true maybe true forgiveness or true compassion or true some type of deeper understanding for. Uh, why a person or how a person is behaving in the way they are behaving by having some type of grace to appreciate well this person is obviously coming from an alien circumstance to me um one where they've had a different set of experiences or to have a different set of instincts which they have no control over so um it's worth um holding that in mind and not damning the person to hell but um you know, showing showing love in whatever way we can, um, and then I think possibly possibly lastly, uh, I said at the beginning of the podcast, um, obviously you're known to me as mom, and I love my mother very much. I love my mom very much, um, and you're certainly uh, an extremely important figure in my life and. Um, one of my chief most inspirations, if not my chief most inspiration in life. Um, So that's what that's who my mother is. That's who my mom is. Um, You're also mammo to four grandchildren and your four grandchildren obviously love you very, very much and get very excited to see you. Um, Obviously, my siblings love you very much as well. And everybody loves their Auntie Ben. (laughs) Everybody loves their Auntie Ben so much. They admire you, and uh, there's many, many, many adults, um, almost probably well, a- lots of adults, some teenagers, maybe even some children that love Mrs. McKeown very deeply, um, and have very fond memories of Mrs. McKeown, uh when they were in your classroom, and to to any person that wants to become. A mammo, or a mam, or a Auntie Ben, or a Mrs. McKeown, or some version of those things. You know, a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, a relative, a friend, or a, a teacher. Uh, what advice would you like to give to these uh, aspiring people who want to be? more like the person you are today?
1: Oh my God, high praise indeed, Pat. Um, well, different teachers asked me, New York teachers in the school, Miss Mullin and Mr Callan as well, and not so much RD. That was the first place I worked in, but um, asked me, you know, what was the most important thing in teaching. The most important thing in teaching is to let children know that you're on their side. No matter what, you are on their side. You are for them. And they'll forget an awful lot of what you teach them, even though you you prefix it. But now, if you learn nothing else from me, only this, I want you to remember this. But it's how you make them feel. feel they feel important. They feel happy with you. And they feel comfortable with you if they know that you're on their side. And I'm sure I've made mistakes in my years of teaching, which I was never, never intended to make. And I just, I always wanted the best for those children. Nothing but the best for them. Um, and the best gift you can give a child is your time. You can go out and buy parcels and buy presents for them and spend an awful lot of money on on giving them material things. But the best gift you can give them is your time and your attention. They love that and to get down on the floor and play with them and you know, be there for them much better than than all the ties and Smiths and all the games and all the, the world, your time. That's what they'll remember. And that's what they appreciate. You know, so.
0: Brilliant, man. Uh, that's a, a, wonderful piece of wisdom to share, and um, to give others your time, and uh, I suppose in places in that, considering the woman who's saying it. Is during that time to show them love and to of course. make the person know that you're on their side and um, to be more like Benji. Oh. <laughs> that should be, we should put that put that on t shirts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a million, man, for being a wonderful mother, a wonderful person, and a, a wonderful guest.
1: Thank you, Pat, for being a wonderful host and a most wonderful son. <laughs> and I love you. More than you'll ever know.
0: (laughs) Love you too, man. Burnett McKeown, this podcast was all about you.
1: Thank you, Pat.